Once again, uh, welcome. Welcome to our Wednesday, uh, Monday evening um, gathering as a community. And tonight for the reflections, I want to share, uh, I wanted to share them around a key word that the Buddha uses to describe the unfolding of this path, at least uh, the Buddha that we discover in these early texts. And And an understanding, uh, to understand this one word, what I wanted to use was uh, a few images he uses to convey the felt sense of this, this word. And the reason I want to take a, long, a, a while with this one word, the word is bhavana, is because getting a sense of, especially the images that he uses and some of the felt sense of it, has been so helpful for me for understanding the unfolding of this path and also the things that it's been helpful for me to remember on this path. This word bhavana is used, it's a Pali Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism or one of the early scriptural languages. It's used differently in different contexts. And, and I'm hoping these images will at least give a, a few dimensions of, of it. Okay, so let's begin. The first way I want to explain it is around one way the word's translated, which is it's often translated as cultivation. And you're going to hear that it's going to describe one part of it, but there's going to be these other aspects that fit around this, this notion of cultivation. And in order to get a feeling sense of cultivation or bhavana in this way, what I invite you to do is to imagine the Buddha using that in his context. And if you, I got this from uh, this author, Glenn Wallace, which I so appreciated. Like if we were to imagine the Buddha, you know, here he is, he's hanging out with the monastics, teaching, and what's all around him? It's this landscape of fields and fields of crops. It's an agricultural um, uh, culture. And in those uh, fields, people are involved in, in cultivating those crops. They have their hands and their feet in the soil, in the dirt. It's earthy. And in that part of the world, it was probably quite lush and kind of rich vegetation. It was verdant. And, and if you can imagine the smells and fragrance, fragrances that would come with that, that world of cultivation. And maybe at times quite humid as well. And when I take all of that, that landscape in is here he's using this word and then it's being reflected in this particular way around him. That feels so different than another way that, that uh, this word is sometimes translated as meditation. That feels different, doesn't it? Oh, cultivation. And here, like, I'm, I got my hands in the dirt, and my feet in the soil. It's a different feeling to the unfolding of this path and what it means to engage in this path. So I invite you to keep that kind of in your heart, because I'm also going to share with you a poem that is going to further, hopefully deepen the sense of cultivation. And also it's going to contrast it with another way that sometimes maybe some of us engage in a spiritual path. It's a poem by uh, 
Rosemary Otola Trummer called Letting It Be. She begins, there is a carpenter in me with an impressive tool belt. She thinks she can fix everything. Every time there's a leak in the ducts, she blames the darn condensation and whips out her metallic, metallic tape. And when there is a heartbreak, she mumbles something about not meeting code then takes note of all the cracks, all the places where it's falling apart and gets to work. Cleans up and preps new concrete to hold things together. I know she's doing what she knows best. I know she has good intentions. But today, while she runs off to seek just the right hammer, just the right nails, I take those leaky ducks and that broken heart into the garden and dig potatoes. The soil is cool and slips soft through my fingers as I sift for yellow fingerlings and red-skinned desirees. There is a gardener in me who doesn't try to fix anything. She says in a quiet southern drawl, sweet thing, bring all that brokenness here and let it walk amongst the sunflowers. Let it weed the carrots and pick some calendula bouquets. And nothing gets fixed but something shifts as I sit beside unruly mint, its green spears rampant, its scent so cooling, so sweet. Isn't that great? Nothing gets fixed but something shifts. To me, that's more of the, the felt sense of the unfolding of this path. It's like allowing a shift to happen like the way it does in gardening, the way it does in those earthy verdant fields filled with growth and blossoming. I, I love this distinction between fixing and allowing for things to shift through cultivation, through getting my hands in the soil. And, and maybe you can relate to this. When, when I reflect on this, it feels really different when I'm trying to fix something in my life rather than allowing something to shift through cultivating the conditions that support that shift. So fixing, it's, you know, in this context, the way I'm using it, it's like I, I have this problem. Let's say my mind's continually lost in worry, or I'm hooked by some frustration or irritation, 
whatever it is, you know, pick your, pick your favorite hook. <laughs> oh, here's this problem here. And then you know what happens? I want to fix it. And what do I mean by that? I want to control it is what I'm really looking for. So it will go away. I, I'm wanting some kind of control and I'm looking for it through fixing. And in that realm, maybe you can hear what's implied, at least for me, is a kind of impatience. And then it can get translated into this path and this practice and how maybe I'm engaging in it. It's kind of like, well, what's up with my practice? What's up with this path? You know, is this really working? I'm still miserable. I'm still worrying. It doesn't seem like it's working. It doesn't seem like I'm getting anywhere in my practice. You have those thoughts? <laughs> it's like fixing minds. And it because because in some ways the, the 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 messy world of cultivation frustrates my fixing mind because my fixing mindset wants it to feel more linear. I want it to be that this difficult thing happens and then maybe I practice loving kindness or I practice mindfulness and then it goes away. Those are the good times, right? It's nice and neat and linear. And of course that can happen, but following this path and this practice might be something really completely different than that, even though there's times of that. And that the Buddha is pointing to this this process of cultivation that's so much more complex, it isn't linear. I get the soil ready, right? it has to be a right consistency, maybe put some compost in it. And then there's a the whole process of composting, right? And then finally you plant the seeds, they begin to sprout. And it's here in Flagstaff in the spring. <laughs> you forget about late frosts, <laughs> maybe late at night, your partner kind of yells and screams and yelps. You go out with the sheet, that's what we use. <laughs> I don't know how effective that is to keep them slightly warm. <laughs> some kind of wither away, some survive. You take the sheet off, they grow, the sun comes. You water, so you notice them grow. The freak hailstorm happens. <laughs> the leaves get damaged. You tend to them. This is the realm of cultivation, isn't it? It, it feels like that. And for me, practice feels like that, doesn't it? You have the smooth days where you sit on your cushion or you feel like you are in contact with your kindness and compassion. And then the other days, it's just a storm. That's so different than the world of fixing. That's, that's the, the world where I'm getting my, my hands in the soil and my feet in the soil. It's the feeling on this path of, right, you know this, two, step forward, two steps forward, one step back. Or maybe it's then two or three steps back and one step forward maybe three or four steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, three steps back. 
That's the path. It's not linear. At least it hasn't felt that way for me. It feels more like gardening, like being in the fields. And what cultivation bhavana reminds me is I am not in control of this process. And this is one of the key things that we're trying to realize in this path, in this practice. When, when the Buddha talks about not self, it's interesting, one of the things that he's trying to point to, and this gets confusing because we, the, the way the Buddha used the notion of self compared to now was quite different. And what he was trying to emphasize in that teaching is, guess what? You're not in control. There's not a self at the center of your experience that controls everything. And you got to really realize that just to practice on the path, you can influence experience. And that's where the key is as a gardener, as one out in the fields cultivating this path is, yeah, I can influence. I just can't completely control it. It's really different when I know I can influence and I, I, I know I'm not in complete control. Yet fixing in terms of the way I was mentioning that, that to me is the control mindset. Do you hear the difference here? And almost it's like what the Buddha is trying to point to with this word bhavana around cultivation. I can, can't control, I can influence. It's messy. And yes, I, I want to acknowledge, like when, when I'm having a really hard time in my life and I want that to end, I, I want to say that that impulse is not entirely unskillful. There can be some skillfulness of wanting relief, and I want to acknowledge that. And when that's going on, I also want to acknowledge that part of the path is sometimes finding the quick fix that can give a little bit of relief, whether it's going for a walk or calling a friend. So yes, sometimes, especially with hard times, it's helpful to find the quick fix that can take care of our systems. So this is important. It's really important, really, with whatever I share. There's going to be these different frames that we're going to have need to have at different times. And I want to point out the, the day in and day out engagement with this path and practice is broader and deeper than that. It includes that. So yeah, there's times for that. And there's something more to it. It's broader, deeper. It's like it's working on a very different time scale about how things change and transform and free this heart. And hopefully you're hearing it has a different flavor to it. And that's why I love the imagining the Buddha being uh, surrounded by these fields where people are working in them. It's a flavor to me that's uh, kind of a slow, persistent nurturing the conditions, just as I would do as a farmer that free this heart. And this is really what we're doing, is cultivating the conditions that allows the path to unfold. I can't control the path in terms of it unfolding, but I can put forth the conditions. And so many of the things that we speak about here on Monday nights or places, other, other places you've read about this. 
sometimes having regular contact with spiritual friends, not only when I'm having an emergency or not only when they're having an emergency, but just simple connection. That's part of the path. Formal meditation, the day in and day out with that. Ethical conduct, kindness and compassion, study, reflection, wise speech. It's like I'm putting all these conditions there and then gradually these, these plants begin to blossom of the Dharma. So that's cultivation. There's another word for bhavana that I want to introduce, though, just so we can feel some more dimensionality, and I've already used it, which is this word nurture. There's a discourse called the bhavana sutta. So the Buddha is talking about bhavana, about cultivation. And there's a couple different images, different similes there. In one is this image the Buddha gives of a hen nurturing her eggs. And as, as he says in the sutta, you know, there's the hen sitting on those eggs properly to keep them warm and incubated. And that's the, the image that he gives of bhavana, which is now to me a different feeling than just cultivation. Now I have a different feeling of this. Oh, this also includes nurturing. And for me, like when I slow down with that image, it's like, oh, nurturing. And when I take that in, it's a, a kind of a feeling sense of nurturing or tendering with these qualities of care or tenderness. Here's this, and she cares so much about these eggs. And there's a, has to be a tenderness around them. Not controlling, influencing with a flavor of kindness and care. And when I slow down even further, I take in, well, there's something about eggs, too. They're really so fragile. They can easily break. And they're vulnerable. They need warmth. They need incubation. Similarly, I am vulnerable. I'm invulnerable to an uncontrollable world that tosses me around. I can actually easily break when confronted by challenging, uncontrollable conditions in this world. That's my nature. That's my existence as a human being. One day I'm feeling healthy, vital, the next day, maybe I feel weak and sick. Maybe health comes back. But I know often sickness will come and death will eventually come. I, I'm a fragile, vulnerable, vulnerable being in, in many ways. And this is the same for the living beings around me as well. And it's in this context that I practice. And that's why I love about this image is, oh, bhavana, oh, I need to remember to nurture, to be tender, to be care, have a quality of care for myself and others. This, this is the nature of this. 
and just with the practice itself as a practitioner engaging in this path, coming back to way, the way I was describing it, when it feels like I'm just taking one step forward and four steps back, and then maybe a little while, three steps forward and two steps back, with that nonlinear process, I need this quality of tenderness because I'm not in control. I can influence, and because of the uncontrollability, it's just going to be that way. I need to remember this image. This, this is part of bhavana. These qualities, too, are part of bhavana, just, not just cultivation, but nurturing kindness and compassion. So again, cultivation, getting our hands in the soil, our feet in the soil. It's messy. Nurturing. I need a heart that's tender, that is caring. And then another piece of this is, with this image, I'm giving birth to something. I'm supporting something being born. Right, I'm giving birth to something that's a living being that's vast and mysterious. And when I slow down with this piece, just for me, it's like I, I imagine one of the things that resonates for me is it's like, oh, it's like this nurturing that I'm doing as a practitioner of giving birth to a world of the Dharma to emerge. Giving birth to a world of the Dharma that emerges through me and around me. And how does this world of the Dharma emerge through me and around me? It's in how I feed the birds during these snowstorms or cleaning up the kitchen or listening to a family member go through a hard time. Oh, this is shaping the world. This is allowing a particular kind of world to come into being. And I think sometimes this, uh, uh, there can be this notion that mindfulness is a tool I use to see my experience out there and the world out there more clearly. Actually, I'm probably one of the people who teaches this a lot. So <laughs> you have to be careful of teachers like me. And yeah, there's something helpful about that, I, I hope, at times. And I want to point out there's something misleading about it. I, th I think sometimes it's helpful to notice that when I'm being mindful, I'm shaping and giving rise to a particular world. I'm shaping how I see and behold the world, and this is shaping and changes the world I inhabit or live in. It's because the world arises dependent partly on how I'm perceiving it, how I'm beholding it. For example, one world that this mind can inhabit, it's a world in which I am running around in my life within a whirl of activity, getting this done and that done, thinking about this or that or excited about this or that moving around without really inhabiting my body. Sometimes that's the world I find myself in. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. No, never. 
<laughs> Yet there's another world, an embodied world that begins to form and shape that I can begin to give birth to by being mindful. Where I get a sense of the space around me, uh, uh, even the movement of my legs or my arms and reaching or grabbing or releasing or sitting and standing and feeling that within the body. Or when somebody shares something with me, right? And I don't know if you know that experience. And not only am I hearing it, but it's like I'm feeling it through my body. It ripples through my heart. And then I can feel that and pause and respond. I, I am influencing experience in a way that allows that, that second world to emerge. So yeah, noticing mindfulness is a tool, but mindfulness always also helps give rise to a different world. Those are entirely different worlds. They feel like that to me. And I, I maybe this is the bad news. Maybe this is just the real news. <laughs> We're nurturing or giving birth to certain kinds of worlds all the time. This is what's happening. It's just that I'm not very conscious of it. It's mostly worlds that have been choose, chosen for me. It might be the world of being a consumer, being an individual, being a cyborg when I pick up my phone. <laughs> A world of scientific materialism that's a world that's inanimate, not alive. What world do you want to nurture, that you want to cultivate, that you want to influence into being born, into giving rise to? So this too is bhavana, it's cultivation, it's nurturing and tenderness. It's also this activity of giving birth to. I'm, I'm not in control, but I can influence. And then I want to end with one last image. There's a few images in this, this sutta, the Bhavana Sutta, where the Buddha is talking about Bhavana. And he says, Suppose a carpenter or their apprentice sees the marks of his fingers and thumb on the handle of an axe. So if you just imagine that, here's this wooden handle to an axe, and it's used so much that you start to see the imprints of the fingers and the thumb, the whole hand there. And then the Buddha continues, and they don't know how much of the handle was worn away today, how much was worn away yesterday and how much was previously worn. They just know what has been worn away. In the same way, when a practitioner is committed to bhavana, to cultivation, they don't know how much of unskillful ways of being were worn away today and how much of skillful, unskillful ways of being were worn away yesterday or how much previously. They just know that it's been worn away.
Isn't that an interesting image? And so different than the other ones. Oh, so there's something about something gradually being worn away, the wearing away of a wooden axe handle. Oh, and there's something about that in Bhavana, that it's somehow also a process of letting go. There's quite a different image than growing or cultivation or nurturing or giving birth to. And that's why I love it, that there's something broad about Bhavana, that it encapsulates quite a bit. So this cultivation or nurturing that leads to my heart dropping something away or wearing something away, it's, it's really the wearing away, classically, of my ignorance that gets me in trouble again and again. It's the wearing away of my reactivity, the frustrations, the irritations, the habits, the habits of worry, the habits of judgment or shame. It's the wearing away of the tangles that can happen in our hearts and minds. Or just to go back to this giving birth to, when I give birth to something, it also wears away those other worlds. The worlds where I, I don't know if your mind's like my mind, like I, I have those conceptualizations about this person or that person. It's like I know I have them figured out and I know what works. I know what number they are on. They are on the Enneagram, right? <laughs> That's how it works, right? Once you know somebody's number or their sign, you know them. <laughs> in the confinement or the confinement that happens when I do that to myself. It's like I put myself in a small box with those conceptualizations or another person. To have that wear away and to be able to relate more deeply with others and myself. And also points to something that can happen on the path, which I think is so much connected with the fixing mind. It's the checking mind. Am I getting better? Is my heart more free from all this? This working? How much was worn away today when I meditated? What about yesterday? <laughs> I think he's really pointing to something around this. It's such a a linear way of thinking rather than this broader sense that there's a, a, a much bigger kind of rhythm that's going on here, much broader sense of time. So hopefully you're hearing, especially with this last image, what I mentioned in the other ones, it's, it's as I said, it's this day in and day out engagement with this path and practice that allows it to be broader and deeper. So to remember, I'm, uh, what I try to remember is I'm just looking for drops, as it said in one of the, the, the sayings, just drop by drop is the water pot filled. Just a drop of kindness, just a drop of compassion, a drop of mindfulness. Because sometimes it can be like, okay, I'm going to be kind today. And then if you get a few moments of kindness, it's like, it's not worth it. It's like, you got to be kind all day for it to work. <laughs> work. 
But it, it, the Buddha is pointing to something different here. He says, don't underestimate onward leading qualities. The pot is filled with water falling drop by drop. The wise one is filled with onward leading qualities piled up bit by bit, drop by drop. So may our hearts, may our hearts be filled drop by drop with these onward leading qualities, really for the, the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Thanks for your attention. Mm-hmm.